Okay, folks, we are finishing up chapter 7 tonight, beginning at verse 9, going through the end, and then we'll move into uh, chapter 8 and maybe some of chapter 9 before we finished. In this passage that John has given to us here in chapter 7, looking at verse 9 through 17, we have a passage that contains encouragement for a lot of hurting people. Here we'll see that the multitude spoken of in these verses has experienced not only suffering and death, but also comfort and beauty. That John describes in this priceless picture the final state of the blessed dead. Throughout all the ages of the church, there have been certain passages that have been a blessing to people who are hurting. And I believe verses 9 through 17 here presents a picture of the state of the blessed dead. For here John uses a phrase he repeats several times in the book of Revelation. The phrase translated all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, which we see there in verse 9, is used to picture the multitude in heaven, much like the gathering of people in great churches and great cities and cosmopolitan churches of John's day. So who is this multitude? Again, we can discount the church, for they're already in heaven. You must remember that these folks arrived there back in chapters 3 through 4. They are represented by the 24 elders, sitting, not standing, around the throne. And we can further note that several distinctive differences between this group that we're talking about here in chapter 9, gathered in this last part of of, uh, chapter 7, and the group of believers gathered in the fourth chapter. First of all, we note that the church has been kept for the great tribulation. They did not go through the tribulation. But this group, ID'd here in verse 9, is said uh, that we read there in verse 14, is said to have come out of the great tribulation. We just read that verse there. <clears throat> verse 9, I think we're looking at. Page up turned. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, <coughs> tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. We can further note several differences between this group, the group of the multitude that's gathered here in this part of chapter 7, and the group of believers gathered in the fourth chapter. First of all, we note that the church has been kept from the great tribulation. But this group that we've identified here in verse 9 is said to have come out of the great tribulation. We're told that these people of the multitude wear white robes, whereas the church is dressed in white raiment. The multitude is standing. The church in heaven is seated. The multitude is uncrowned. The church wears crowns. Those who have already gathered have harps and vows while the people of the multitude are carrying palms. Earlier we noted that the church sang a new song while these people are crying out with a loud voice. 
As we continue to study the book of Revelation, we will need to remember there is no single group that encompasses everything that is going on until we get to the end of the book. But everyone then comes together for eternity. Until that time, we see there are representatives of all nations, all states of God's work. There are the Jews, there's the church, there's the multitude of the saints who are basically Gentiles who have been saved during the tribulation period. Incidentally, they have been won to Christ by the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that we learned about in chapter 6. The majority of saints in the tribulation period will die as martyrs. Some will be killed in earthquakes. Some will die during war and pestilence. Others will be the objects of special persecution by the world rulers that are there then. They will be hounded to death as Jews were during World War II. They will not be allowed to worship Christ, but because they will not also worship the beast, they will be under the sentence of death. The results will be thousands upon thousands who are martyred during the tribulation. The people of the multitude then are those who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes white with the blood of the Lamb. Scripture says there will be so many that they cannot be counted. In this harvest of souls, that is the result of the work of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, we are seeing fulfill the prophecy that's contained in Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Now you may hear people say that the rapture cannot occur until the whole world has heard the gospel. Therefore, we need to preach the gospel to every creature so that the last person to be brought into the kingdom at which time Jesus will return for his church. Well, this can't be true. If there's anything that has yet happened before Christ's return, then there's no such thing as an imminent return of Jesus Christ. And folks, believe me, there is not one thing that needs to be done before he returns. Amen. He could come tonight before we leave this building. You see, the command to take the gospel into the whole world is certainly pressing upon every generation. But the condition of the gospel going to the whole world is conditioned not on the rapture, but on the second coming of Christ. Because as we examine this great multitude in heaven, we see people who have been won to Christ after the rapture has occurred. The gospel message must be taken everywhere. And so that prophecy of Matthew 24, 14 that we just read is fulfilled not in our time, but in their time. It may be that radio and television and printed page, as well as satellites and all technology and that we have now will be used during that day. But the gospel will go everywhere and people will be saved and then the end will come. Looking back at that multitude, the first thing we notice is their status. We see their status is one of power. It's one of honor before Almighty God because we see this group standing before the throne, before the Lamb, whereas the church is seated. We see there in verse 9, as well as in verses 13 and 14, that the people of the multitude have made their robes white because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. 
This is a reference to their salvation and probably relates back to chapter 6, verse 11 in the Scripture where people are referred to as being clothed in white. It can mean one of two things. Either they have been washed and clothed through salvation in the righteousness of Christ, or they have been clothed themselves in righteousness as believers. There is both an inward and an outward righteousness, which is usually distinguished by the use of the figurative language regarding white clothes. In the Greek, the phrase used here is white stoles. The Greek word translated stoles referred to an outer garment worn to reflect dignity, grace, distinction, and beauty. So looking at this multitude, we notice their status. They're standing before the throne. We notice that their robes are white. And the third thing we notice is their safety. There are two indications of this condition. The reference to the palm branches in their hands in verse 9 and the statement that God will dwell among them in verse 15. We know that palms were part of the celebration of the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles during which the Jews for a period of time lived in booths which they constructed. They also carried palm branches to remind them of the time God delivered them from the terrible slavery of Egypt. There are many other occasions recorded in scriptures where the Jews used palm branches as a reminder of deliverance from tribulation, from trial, and from difficulty. Palm branches represented celebration. And here in chapter 7, the people of the multitude are excited and thrilled because of what God has done for them, and theirs is a celebration of joy. The shout of triumphant faithful ascribes triumphant faith of the triumphant of faithful ascribes salvation to God. God has brought them through their trials and tribulations, through their distresses, and his power which has upheld them, and it is his glory which they now share and receive. <coughs> God is the great savior. He is the great rescuer. He's the great deliverer of his people. And the deliverance which God gives is the greatest deliverance of all. And it's not a deliverance of escape, but it is a deliverance of conquest. It's not the deliverance which saves a man from trouble. No, it's the deliverance which a man triumphantly goes through his trouble. It does not make life easy, but it certainly makes life great. Folks, it's not part of the Christian hope to look for a life in which man is saved from all troubles and all distresses. The Christian hope is that a man in Christ can endure any kind of trouble, any kind of distress, and remain erect all through them and come out to glory on the other side. Amen. Then after the celebration, we move into verses 13 and 14. We find some version of this text generalizes the meaning of this passage. There are some verses, versions of the Bible that says, these are they who came out of great tribulation. The, the correct translation is, these are they who came out of the great tribulation. We need to remember that the writer is see, what the writer is seeing. It is John's conviction that he and his people are standing at the end of time of history. And he is certain that that end time is terrible beyond all imagination. 
the whole point of his vision is that it is granted to him to see beyond that terrible time and to see the glory that will follow it. It is definitely not tribulation in a general sense of which he is speaking, but of the tribulation of the end of time. It is that tribulation which the Scripture tells us that Jesus himself foretold when he said in Mark 13, In those days there will be tribulation such as was not been from the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. So folks, John is not writing in general terms. He's writing to give strength and courage in the situation which he conceives of as coming immediately upon his own time and his own generation. Looking at verse 15, <clears throat> verse 15, we see the service of the multitude. In verse 12, we were told that there was singing and worship. Here in verse 15, we are told that there will be a service day and night in His temple. In the Old Testament, the privilege of serving God day and night belonged to only two types of people. That was the Levites and the priest. And these Gentiles who were on the earth at that time were not allowed to enter the temple. They could not go beyond the court of the Gentiles on pain of death. However, in this temple, the way the presence of God is open to all people of every race, all are engaged in glad, unceasing service to their God. There are no barriers or restraints, only absolute, total openness to the throne of God. To serve God day and night indicates that they will not need to sleep or rest, but will serve continually with no limitation. And so here we can see the wonderful opportunity for personal fellowship, for the Lord Himself is going to dwell with them. So having seen this status in the multitude, the salvation, the safety, the singing, and the service. <clears throat> and finally there in verse 16, we see the shepherding. The shepherding of the multitude by God Himself. You might ask, why is it that they are being shepherded? Why is that so important to this group of people? Well, think about what they have endured in the tribulation period. This provision by God contrasts sharply to what they have just gone through. Because they were believers, they were starved by the Antichrist. They could not buy food without the mark of the beast. The rivers were turned to blood so that there was no water to drink. So what did they have? God is now specifically providing for them what they did not have. And notice that verse 16 states, they will not suffer these things anymore. Now all the tears and sorrows of their former lives are going to be put behind them. God is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. We see that in verse 17. That phrase indicates that the tears are not just wiped away, but taken out of their eyes so that the tears are not there anymore. Folks, it is theologically incorrect to say there will be no more tears in heaven. If that was correct, what is God wiping away here? In fact, there will be tears. And Scripture records that they will be wiped away on two occasions, both related to the two judgments of God. God will wipe away the tears of Christians for two reasons. First of all, at the judgment seat of Christ, we will weep when we realize what we could have done for Christ and we didn't do it. 
Some will look back over lives that were wasted, ruined, and squandered. Folks, the biggest waste is to think that you can live your own life, you can have your own fling, and then you can come and accept Christ in order to go to heaven. What a terrible thing to waste a life. And what an overwhelming sense of rebellion to say that to God. And you know, God may not allow you to do that. And that's a sobering, awesome thought. We'll also weep when we see the unsaved people which could have, we could have witnessed to but didn't as they perished and they go to hell for eternity. Remember that the tribulation period here on earth coincides with the judgment seat of Christ in heaven. And so in Revelation, we'll get to that in a little later on, Revelation 21 verse 4, we will find that God wipes away tears after the great white throne judgment. When all of the unsaved appear before God and He says, I never knew you. Depart from me. And they go into eternity lost forever. After that, God wipes away the tears ultimately and finally of the people who are in heaven. It appears that some are concerned that there is a talk of a great revival taking place during the tribulation. Thinking that this represents a second chance at salvation for those who have refused the claims of Christ while they were alive on earth before the tribulation. Folks, there will be no second chance, no opportunity to reject Christ and then accept Him after the rapture occurs. Remember this reference to the multitude being saved during the tribulation period does not refer to people who had a chance in their lifetime to be saved but died Rejecting Christ. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12 indicates that a person who hears the gospel, refuses salvation before the tribulation, will not be saved because he will be sent a strong delusion. He will be sent a lie due to the pleasure in unrighteousness. What lie will that one believe? Revelation 13 tells us it will be the lies of the beast and of the Antichrist who fabricate the life of Christ and bring deception. Believing these descriptions, we see the people who died having rejected the gospel before the tribulation will go to hell without opportunity to receive Christ. For the day of grace will be over for them. There is no second chance. This is the day of salvation. We need to understand the most important point in this passage is not discouragement of people missing out on salvation. It is the encouragement of recognizing that when we go through trouble and tribulation and suffering, God understands. He takes us through it. When we come out, He ministers to every need we have personally. This is not a ministry God waits until eternity to do for us. He's in that business every day. He wants to help and encourage us because He knows what we are experiencing. He loves us and ministers to us in the midst of our tribulation. Moving into chapter 8. We know that in the scroll there were seven seals. We've studied the first six. Now we learn that contained in the seventh seal are the seven trumpets, the seven trumpet judgments. As the various judgments sound in this chapter, 
the planet is handled, handed over to the beast and the devil's messiah. The man of sin now begins to take control. We saw that the first few chapters of the book of Revelation deals with the churches. And then these are followed by a discussion of the tribulation period. The beginning of that tribulation has been pictured for us as a scroll or the title deed to earth upon which are the seals. Remember that these seals have been seen as the scroll has been unrolled and each has revealed the contents of the judgment a little bit at a time. In essence then, when we remove the seventh seal from the scroll, we are unraveling the remainder of the plan of God for this earth in the book of Revelation. As we begin our study of chapter 8, I'll remind you again, the church is not here. The church is gone. We don't need to forget that. We don't need to be picturing in our mind what those who have accepted Christ and, and are in heaven would be going through this. Most of the converted Jews have been martyred for their faith. Many of the Gentiles who have come to Christ as the result of the evangelism done again by the 144,000 have been martyred for giving their testimony for the Lord. And these also are in heaven. However, here on earth, a tremendous judgment is being poured out. In our study of the six sealed judgments, we've been given a vision of a world that has been ruined by man. The plagues, the wars, the deaths have all illustrated the wrath of God's judgment brought on by mismanagement of men. Yes. And now after the pause of chapter 7, we're coming to the last of the seals. We will see the encouragement of chapter 7 is over. And the world ruined by men under the seal of judgment is about to become a world rule by Satan under the trumpet judgments. We found that under the seal of judgments, men were horrified. They cried out to God and the wrath of the Lamb has come. But under the trumpet judgment, we're about to study the world will become so bad that it will be easy for Satan's man to take over. Under the trumpet judgments, men are hardened, and their concern is not about the lamb, but about the beast who has come upon the earth. And so as we begin to look at this chapter 8, there are four thoughts that we need to consider here. The first is the silent pause. We see there in verse 1 that this precedes the horror that is about to happen. We're told there's a period of silence. Notice, this silence is in heaven. It's not on earth. And folks, there's a day coming when all of earth will be silent before God. But the heavens have been filled with noise of worship. Uh, the, the choirs have been singing. The angels have been praising God. But now the seven-sealed book is completely open. And the breaking of the seventh seal brings a strange hush in heaven, foreshadowing a solemn event. Judgment is about to come upon the land, and there is a breathless silence that precedes this storm. All of heaven is waiting to see what will happen. And first of all, we see it is a silence of awe and expectancy. But it is also an ominous silence of foreboding. Folks, one half hour in the right set of circumstances can seem like an eternity. So there is a silent pause. Secondly, there is a solemn preparation. 
We see that in Revelation, the 8th chapter, the 2nd verse. The angels in this verse have the task of announcing the execution of the judgment through the sounding of the trumpets. Announcing the great final intervention of God in judgment. And these solemn moments in heaven, because the judgment is about to occur, are terrible. There are the awful judgments prophesied in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We find the angels have a very important role in the unfolding events. Verse 6 indicates that they had to prepare themselves to blow the trumpets. Recognize that he is about to bring judgment. We come to the third point, which is there in verses 3 through, three through 5, and it reveals that, that we've seen the, the pause and we've seen the preparation and now we're seeing the saints' prayers, which, by the way, are not necessarily positive prayers, but rather they're prayers calling down curses or evil against the earth. Possibly Revelation 6, 9 through 10 is the prayer referred to here. That's when the, um, the souls under the altar were crying out for a vengeance. Here the saints are praying that God will go into action and vindicate His people. <coughs> Remember, those who are praying are the people killed for their faith, martyred for their Lord. Now they are in heaven, apparently having some knowledge of the wickedness going on on earth. And they pray, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And we can know that this is the nature of their prayer because immediately after the prayer ascends, the judgment descends. As soon as they pray, their prayer is answered. The altar there in verse 5 from which the angels fill the censer with fire represents the place of judgment. And the fire represents the judgment of God upon sin. We are told that the fire around the altar is now emptied onto the earth, poured out as a judgment. And the tribulation period is over and the great day of God's wrath is being poured out. The saint's prayer is about to be answered in the sinner's punishment. <coughs> Chapter 8, there in Revelation, verses 6 through 13, begins the record of the sounding of the first four trumpets. We will find Revelation eleven fifteen tells us that the trumpet judgment appears just... <coughs> just before the second coming of Christ. And we notice that the voices in the heaven were saying, the kingdoms of this world will have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. So now we begin looking at the last section of the book of Revelation, just before Christ comes to the earth to set up His kingdom. And as we study the trumpet judgments, the first trumpet is sounded in Revelation 8, verse 7. Folks, we'd have no more reason to interpret these passages symbolically than we have to interpret symbolically the plagues of the book of Exodus. <clears throat> when God sent the plagues upon those who were holding uh, the children of Israel. Therefore, literally, when the first trumpet sounds, hail and fire are mingled with blood and cast upon the earth, and a third of the trees, along with the green grass, is burned up. With the sounding of this first trumpet is going to begin a terrible ecological devastation of the earth. 
in which a third of all vegetation will be destroyed. It is a bleak picture. There's no way we can understand it. It will do uh, what it will do to the balance of nature. But folks, our responsibility is to believe it and not to understand it. Then in verse 8 and 9, as the second trumpet is sounded, a great mountain burning with fire is cast into the sea. And we know that with these judgments, there is a terrible happening upon the earth. We can expect that many things will happen that have never happened before in the history of the world. And that is why the judgment will be so awesome. We can see literally the sea will become blood and one-third of the sea life will die. If you think about it, there will be no destruction. Uh, There will be a destruction of all the shipping of the world. And the far-reaching implication of these judgments are beyond our understanding. Someone has reasoned that that the oceans occupy about three-fourths of the earth's surface, so the extent of the judgment will be staggering. The pollution of the water and the death of so many sea creatures will vastly affect the balance of life in the ocean. This will happen to one-third of the salt water bodies of the world. And then when the second trumpet has been silenced, the third trumpet sounds. And we see there in verse 10 and 11, the judgment of the third trumpet affects fresh water supplies. We saw the salt water was, was polluted and destroyed, and now we will see that the fresh water supply, which will become bitter with the results that any people that partake of it will die. This instrument of judgment will be uh, from, far star, from a far star which is labeled wormwood, We know that there are many species of wormwood growing in Palestine. They all have a strong, bitter taste and serve as a symbol of sorrow, bitterness, and calamity. We saw in the Old Testament there in Jeremiah, when Jeremiah is uh, walking through Jerusalem and regretting and and being sorrowful over the fact that that the folks of Jerusalem Jerusalem have been taken captive. He said that uh, that God gave him wormwood to eat. And then again, when he was writing his lament and lamentations, and he walked through Jerusalem and saw the destruction there, he said that his mouth was filled with bitterness, that it was filled with wormwood. We can see from these judgments in chapter 8 that there is a meteoric phenomenon which takes place. A great star or meteorite hurling through space approaches Earth. Sweeping along the surface of the Earth, it turns one-third of the water of the Earth into a deadly, poisonous liquid. It affects the rivers, the springs, and the wells. Folks, here God uses what He creates to affect His end. Verses 12 through 13 tells us that the fourth trumpet sounds. With this trumpet, there is an effect upon the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the uniformity of the day and night. Can you even imagine the chaos on earth when the sun and the moon and the stars are smitten to an extent that one-third of them will be out of kilter, and apparently the 24-hour cycle that we have come to know will be shortened to a 16-hour cycle. And we think changing to daylight savings time was 
As John records in the fourth trumpet, it's re- the results there, he hears what the text says as an angel is flying through the midst of heaven. Folks, most uh, folks who have studied this have translated that angel to an eagle. For this eagle is flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. The sounding of the first Fourth trumpet is simply a warning that there are three trumpets of judgment left to come and woe be unto the inhabitants of the earth. These last three trumpets are going to bring a new quality and degree of divine displeasure and disaster with its consequence. Let me remind you that we said after the first four seals that the next three would be severe. And that that pattern would continue. And so after the first four trumpets, the next three are going to be more severe. And we will see that with the bowls, after the first four bowls, the next three will be more severe. So getting back to the woes, we shall see that the first woe is locusts. The fifth trumpet judgment there in, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 12 which is the first woe. Here we have a picture of an individual energized by hell who can let torment of unprecedented dimension loose on earth. Folks, this star is Satan himself. When John saw him, he says, he has fallen from heaven, which was an apt description for he had definitely fallen from heaven. And this was his second fall the second time he had been thrown out of heaven. Generally accepted, there are these are not literal locusts in that they do not feed upon the natural uh, feed of locusts. We know that ordinarily locusts is devastating to vegetation, but they're not harmful to human beings. But these demonic locusts are forbidden to attack the vegetation of the earth but their attack is to be launched against men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. These demonic locusts had the stings of scorpions. The scorpions were one of the scourges of Palestine. It is shaped like a small lobster. It has claws like a lobster. Uh, With those claws, it clutches its prey. It has a long tail which curves over the head and over its head. At the end of the tail is curved claw. It is with that claw that the scorpion strikes, and this claw secretes a poison as the blow is delivered. The scorpion can be up to six inches in length. It lives in holes and walls and literally under every stone. In uh, present day, Security, if you ever go camping before you pitch your tent, you might want to look and make sure there are no scorpions under the rocks around where you are. The scorpion's sting is worse than that of a hornet. It's not necessarily fatal, but it can kill. The dynamic locust has the power of scorpions added to them. They combine in themselves to do a double and terrible scourge. We learn their attack is to last for five months. 
The explanation of five months is generally the lifespan of a locust from birth to death. So we might say one generation of locusts is launched upon the earth. And such will be suffering caused by the locusts that men will be long for death but will not be able to die. A Latin writer named Gallius said, Worse than any wound is to wish to die and not yet be able to do so. This will be the state of men that even death would be a relief and a release for them. Verses 14 through 17 reveals the second woe. Here we see the horror of the picture uh, begins to mount. The demonic locust was allowed to endure, but not to kill. But now they, then comes the squadrons of demonic cavalry to annihilate a third part of the human race. This is a, pa- a passage that uh, its imagery is very mysterious, and no one has fully explained the details of it. I'm here tonight to tell you that I won't explain it either. But no one really knows who the four angels who had abound at the river Euphrates were. We can only set down what we know and what we can guess. We know that the Euphrates was the the ideal boundary of the territory of Israel. It was God's promise to Abraham. In Genesis 15, 18, God said unto thy seed, I have given the land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. The angels therefore come from the distant lands, from the strange and alien and hostile places, and from these very parts of the world from which the Assyrians and the Babylonians have in time past descended with destruction upon Israel. So the the angels came from the quarter of the world from which disaster had in ancient times come upon God's people in Israel. The four angels are angels of punishment. They come from a part of the world from which disaster and slavery has so often come. The most destructive and dreaded warriors in the world were the Parthian cavalry. And these Parthians dwelt beyond the Euphrates. May well be that John is visualizing a terrible descent of the Parthian cavalry on mankind. And then John adds the horror to horror. But the number of hosts of this terrible cavalry is 200 million, which simply means that they were beyond all numbers. We don't find very much about this Parthian cavalry. There's nothing about it in the Old Testament. There is a, a, a reference to it in Acts chapter 2, verse 9, at the time of the, um, uh, the gathering of all the folks um, that spoke many different languages we're told that there were some Parthians there. Uh, We find that uh, Josephus has much to say about these Parthians, particularly about their battles to the Romans. Uh, Josephus was one who followed Roman uh, battles and and the life of Rome very closely, and he often uh, brought forth uh, historical references to the battle of the Romans to these Parthians. The consequence of all this is that one third of the rate of the human race is destroyed. 
You know, it would have been only natural to think that the remainder of mankind would have taken warning from the dreadful events that have taken place. But they did not. Verses 20 and 21, they continued to worship their dreadful idols and demons and dwelt, who dwelt with them. They continued the evil of their ways. They did not repent. It is the conviction of the biblical writers that the worship of idols was nothing less than demon and devil worship, and that worship was bound to result in evil and immorality. The third woe, which we will get to uh, in chapter 11, verse 15. Folks, all the events of the tribulation are simply preparation for the world to be handed over to Satan for his rule. Think about this for a moment. Imagine for a moment what you would feel if you had experienced firsthand what we have described prophetically in this lesson. You've lost friends. You've lost loved ones because of this judgment. Devastation has totally taken out some cities and towns where your loved ones lived. There's no telephone communication across the nation. The news was filled with unpredictable and unexpected tragedy. On the late news, word begins to spread that someone has come to the front and announced his ability to deal with those overwhelming calamities. He described his hope and his vision and talks of miraculous powers that have been given to him, and he will announce his plans on a later television broadcast. So would you be in front of your TV that night? I believe you would. All of life's other concerns would be laid aside. Every person would be sitting spellbound, hoping against hope that this man's intentions would be realized. Scripture says that when that happens, the beast, the man of sin, the devil's Christ, will step to the front and galvanize the world behind his leadership, leading them with promises he never intends to keep. His final control of the world will ultimately lead to the gigantic battle we know as Armageddon. In the seal judgments, we see the world ruined by man. In the trumpet judgment, we see the world ruled by Satan. By the time we get to the trumpet judgment, to the end of the trumpet judgment, we will see the world reclaimed by Christ. The earth must go through this cycle because that is what the Bible says. The good news is that we as individual will not have to experience it. We know as Christians, <clears throat> we'll go up with that group that we saw go up in chapter 3. Amen. I know that I am preaching to the choir, but we read and study the book of Revelation. If you don't know that you know that you know, yes. you need to do something about it. Oh, yes. You need to, if you've got any questions, if you've got any doubts, let this be a motivation to you to invite the Lord Jesus Christ to come into your life. Not because of fear of what would happen, but because of the joy you would gain in being in heaven. If there's any question in your mind, I would ask you, Pastor Randy is here, take a time and talk to him and make sure that you understand exactly what you know you know. And if there's any doubt, that you take care of that. Yes. And if you know that you know, I would ask you then to heed what Pastor Kevin preached on Sunday and share that 
with someone else. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. As harsh as it is, we thank You that it is a red flag. It is a warning to us. Lord, we're thankful that we can be a part of chapter 3. We can be a part of the church that goes up and will be there with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the angels and all of those up there looking over to see what's going on. Dreading some of what we see, but being thankful for what we have. Father, we just pray that You help us to live our lives each day in accordance to Your will, being thankful for what You've given to us and the opportunity that You gave to us through Your Son, Jesus Christ, to know You and to avoid what John has told us is going to happen. Thank You, Father. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Scorpius when I was in the army stationed in Panama 
and we were out moving some sandbags one day out in the wilderness thing there. And I reached and grabbed a sandbag, and one of those scorpions hit me, and it's popped. Well, when we lived in Blue Ridge for 10 years, the house we lived in, we killed scorpions constantly. There was a little black ones like that. Unfortunately, we none of us ever got stung by one. But that one got me on the hand that day on that sandbag, and button my hand swelled up. It was a big old sucker. There'd be nothing like them things they talked about there. Though. But I think. The aid wagon carried me into the aid station, and I spent the rest of the day there, laying in there with the ice packed on me. They gave me shots and stuff. I reckon it had a little poison in it. It won't be nothing. What you need, lady? I missed last week, and I need the seven seals, the diagrams you handed out. I got a lot of we want to get through. We got to go. Yeah, I'm just 
Two seconds. 